0: We'll get to Romans in just a minute. This is from C.S. Lewis. It was actually sent out by one of my classmates from West Point. It is an excerpt from C.S. Lewis' 1948 book on living in an atomic age. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. And every place she says atomic bomb, just put plague. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? And for those of you who are not alive in the 50s, some of you are young kids, they used to do stuff like teaching children to hide under their desks in case they got nuked. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century, when a plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in the Viking Age, when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat on any night. Or indeed, as you are already living in the age of cancer, in an age of syphilis, in an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, and an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love are already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics. And we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which is already bristling with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting with our friends over a pint and a game of darts not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. So that's C.S. Lewis. So anyway, we're in Romans chapter 3. And Interestingly, Ronald Dart is about a chapter and a half behind where I am right now. So I imagine by the end of the week, he will have caught up and surpassed me. And he's still on chapter one. He hasn't really gotten into chapter two at this point. And it was interesting. As I said at the beginning, I have no idea why Paul wrote this letter. And Ronald Dart, as he's going into the part in chapter one where he goes, all this is reserved for you sinners and all that kind of stuff. Dart says, I have no idea what pulled his trigger here. So Ron Dart and I both look at this and say, what led him to light into those people that way? And I still don't know the answer to it, by the way. So anyway, Gart's point and my point and everybody else's point here is that God's standards are universal. They apply both to the Jew and to the Gentile. And we will all be judged according to our behavior. And uh, to quote Yeshua, not precisely, but... The one who does wrong knowing better will get more stripes than the one who does wrong in ignorance. The standards can be known. Every society has figured out that adultery is bad, bad for society, and shouldn't be done. Same with murder and lots of things. Now we may differ on whether we eat shrimp, but the big stuff everybody pretty much agrees on And as I am very fond of saying, you can steal a sheep anywhere in the world and they have a way of dealing with you. Some places they'll cut your hand off. Some places they'll throw you in jail. Biblically, they make you repay, what is it, five for one, something like that. But everybody knows what to do with you if you steal a sheep. That's what Paul is saying here. God's standards are universal. Now, having said all of that, we're now at chapter three. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or, what is the value of circumcision? Much, in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone be a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And that, by the way, is a quote from Psalm 51 leading up to this, we've just said that God's standards are universal. They apply to everybody. And so if they apply to everybody, what's the point of being a Jew is the question. The way I would describe this is if you were to take your teenage son and suit him up in a football uniform and send him out to play on a college team when he didn't know the rules, he would have two problems. Problem number one is those big guys would run all over him, but problem number two is he would get clobbered because he didn't know where to be and how to move and how to avoid things. In other words, the knowledge of the rules gives you a tremendous advantage in the game of life. So when God gives us his rules in the Torah, that's much like sitting your kid down and explaining all right now here's the rules of this game and that doesn't do anything for the size differential necessarily i mean if he's playing the oklahoma sooners and he's a high school football kid he's not going to be mature and big enough and all that stuff but he's also not going to be out of place out of position and get run over by accident that's pretty much what paul is saying and furthermore The fact that the Jews are imperfect in following the Torah doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. God gave them the Torah because he loved them and he gave them the Torah as a benefit to them. The fact that they don't perfectly follow that doesn't reflect back on God. It is not a matter of him making unreasonable rules the fact that they can't follow the rules perfectly is not a function that the rules themselves are a problem. The rules themselves are right and just and good. The fact that people in general can't follow them perfectly is a problem with people, not with the rules. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serve to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? So the point here is our unrighteousness magnifies God's righteousness. Our behavior when held up against God's standard makes the standard look higher because we tend to be low. So Paul's idea here is, well, I'm actually glorifying God here by my bad behavior should i get some credit for that don't i get credit for being a bad example that's literally what he says and when he says i speak in a human way you can hear the whine in somebody's voice for example we live in a thoroughly post-christian era post-biblical era right now and one of the standard excuses for poor behavior is god made me that way well yeah he did but he expects you to work and improve and get better. He doesn't expect you to simply sit back on your blessed assurance and nothing I can do, I was made that way, okay? So that is not an excuse, and Paul is saying much the same thing. Verse 6, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? That was what I was just saying. And why not do evil that good may come? In other words, if God gets magnified by my stumbling, I guess I'll go around stumbling some more to magnify God. Verse 8 again. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. One of the things that Peter says is our brother Paul sometimes writes in ways that are hard to understand. It's sort of like Moses with what may have been a stutter or a lisp, that he didn't want to be God's spokesman. And so God finally said, all right, I'll have Aaron talk for you. So people are charging that Paul is preaching against Torah. And I will say in parentheses, because Paul is preaching grace. And Paul says, that's not true. I am not counseling people to break the law so that good may come by comparison with God. People who are saying that I say that are slanderous. And furthermore, their condemnation is just. In other words, they will be condemned for their slander of me. Paul is absolutely not speaking against Torah, but there are people out there who are misinterpreting him to their own destruction, as Peter would say. They're misinterpreting Paul deliberately so as to discredit him and to discredit his message. Because remember, we we talked about this earlier on. You have a number of parties within Judaism and within Christianity. You all remember the Council of Jerusalem. There was an argument between the party of the circumcision, quote, unquote, and peter and paul in front of james and the party of the circumcision said in order for these people to come into the kingdom of god we got to turn them into jews which means they got to be circumcised they got to be told to keep the whole torah which is the oral torah as well as the written torah they got to become jews and the council of jerusalem says no they don't so you've got believing jews both rabbinic jews who don't believe in yeshua and Jews who do believe in Yeshua but are of the circumcision party, both of those groups are trying to get a handle on Gentiles who have come in to belief in God, have the Holy Spirit, walk on water, talk in tongues, all that kind of stuff. And what they're trying to do is get them corralled, and the corral that they want to put them in is oral Torah circumcision etc that crowd has got a political motive saying that paul is teaching you amiss that's the whole point of the book of galatians for example the whole book of galatians deals with that topic so paul is saying here that these people who say that i am speaking against the law are slandering me that's not true i'm not verse nine what then are we Jews better off? Notice, we Jews. Paul regards himself as a Jew. He's a Messianic Jew, but he is a Jew. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, though not one, "...no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one." And that is a quote from a couple of psalms. Psalm 14, 1-3, or 53, 1-3. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 13, "...their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness." Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What he's talking about here are the people who are slandering him. Now, as you go back in the Old Testament, Paul will go back and cherry-pick verses. And I will say, quite frankly, sometimes out of context. So, for example, my poster child for that is all our righteousnesses as filthy rags, which he takes from Isaiah 64, verses 5 and 6. We have been like unclean things and our upright deeds are like filthy rags. And Paul uses that when he's talking about things like this, where you can't work your way to salvation. And by the way, I agree you can't work your way to salvation. But the quote is in the context of Israel's apostasy. So Israel is apostate and they are being warned by Isaiah that if they don't shape up, they're going to go into exile. They have gone into violence, injustice, and even though they are doing the form of righteousness in the context of the temple, since their hearts are corrupt, What Isaiah says is, all that righteousness that you're doing smells to me like dirty diapers. Paul will cherry pick things like that. And the reason I bring it up is he is also saying that God cares about your behavior. That's what he's talking about in the context of Torah. God cares about your behavior. That's why he gave you the Torah. So it is not the case that trying your best to live according to God's laws is somehow a stench in God's nostrils. That isn't true. What is a stench in God's nostrils is self-righteousness, violence, hypocrisy, all those kinds of things. So if you recognize that you need a Messiah, you need Yeshua to cover for the shortfalls that you have, then doing your best to keep the Torah is pleasing to him. If, however, you say, I am righteous, look at all the laws I keep, and I don't need anybody to help me, then you're starting to smell like dirty diapers. Interestingly, I was reading Rabbi Sachs the other day, and Sachs is very clear that Christianity and Judaism are different on this respect because his perspective is Judaism is of the opinion that we are not waiting for a savior, we are expected to follow God's Torah and work our way to righteousness. And in that way, rabbinic Judaism is different than Christianity. And this is you know, Chief Rabbi of Great Britain that is saying this. All I'm doing is quoting him. So all the way down to maybe verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There's a whole bunch of stuff in that paragraph. First of all, notice who is held accountable. The whole world, not just the Jews. He has been saying all along that God's standards do not differentiate between Jews and Gentiles. The standard is the standard. The fact that the Jews have been given that standard gives them a head start and a leg up because there's stuff that you would be tempted to do and you might not know was wrong, but God says, don't do that. So you have no excuse. But the whole point is. God's law is universal, just like his law of gravity, just like his law of the speed of light, just like every law that he makes, it is universal. And so the whole world will be held accountable. Now, a couple of things. This is probably more appropriate when we get to chapter 8, but I want to prefigure it for you. The law in Greek is nomos, and Paul is writing here in Greek. So it isn't always clear what he means when he says law. Sometimes he means the written Torah of Moses. Sometimes he means the entire law of Judaism, the Torah, the Mishnah, the Talmud, all of that kind of stuff. Sometimes he means a principle, as in it's a law that if you run a stop sign, you're likely to get clobbered. That's just a principle. And you have to, when you're reading Paul, figure out which one he's talking about. And unfortunately, the Greek doesn't give you a lot of help. Hence, when you talk to people, especially those of a Sunday persuasion, or of the opinion that the law has been done away with, you will have them drag you to places where Paul says things about the law that you look at and say, that can't be talking about Torah. That's not what he's talking about here. It's very hard to break through that, especially for people who have been taught all their lives that you don't want to mess around with that old law because it'll bring death. It's just hard to to talk, to to have a conversation there because there's, among other things, there's a lot of fear. It's sort of like arguing with a Catholic. They've been brought up all their lives, that the sacraments are this, and if you don't do the sacraments, you're doomed and it's fear. So it's the same thing with evangelicals. So anyway, works of the law. Works of the law is a rabbinic term. What it means is doing good deeds, mitzvot. And what he's saying here is these mitzvot, or good deeds, or works of the law are not sufficient to save you. You can go along and you can follow every traffic law just perfectly all your life, but boy, murder one person and it's all over. So the idea that you're keeping all of the traffic laws perfectly will not absolve you from a charge of murder. That's sort of what Paul was saying. Comment was the straight edge of the law shows us how crooked we can be. I completely agree. And again, part of your job Here And the part of the thing that you're supposed to be doing as you go through this life is you're supposed to be straightening out some of those crooked curves. That's the idea. And if you have a relationship with God, those parts that you don't finally get straightened up, the blood of Yeshua will cover. But that doesn't mean that you're exempt from trying to get them straight. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the idea is the law and the prophets are consistent with the law of God. Start back at 21 again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Yeshua Messiah for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Messiah Yeshua, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This idea of his divine forbearance having passed over former sins. He will develop that theme more fully as we go down through here. There's an old army term called flash to bang. When you see a muzzle flash or an explosion, there's a time lag between when you see the flash and when you hear the bang. And the closer the flash to bang is, the closer you are to whatever's going on. So in God's economy, flash to bang is quite long. And what he does is he gives you then opportunity to grow, to repent, to change your ways, all of those kinds of things. It is not the case that the instant you sin, you die. There are some certain circumstances where flash to bang is instant, like the case where David is trying to bring the ark to Jerusalem on an ox cart, and the oxen stumble, and a guy reaches out his hand to steady it and dies on the spot. So there are instances where flash to bang is very short. But by and large, it is longer, and the whole purpose of it is to give you room to repent of your error and to change your ways and to grow. Sort of like if you had a two-year-old, ooh, you pooped your diaper, whack, you'd never have any three-year-olds. You understand what I'm saying? It's that kind of thing, which we can understand because he gives us families by examples. So that's divine forbearance. He has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Yeshua. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. Now notice he has used law in a couple of different senses here. So, anyway, 27 again. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So what Paul is saying here is that, to use Ken's term, the straight line of the law shows us how crooked we are, and everybody falls short of God's standard, no matter what, no matter who they are we fall short in different areas. So the only way anybody is acceptable to God is through faith in God, which is to say God expects us to fall short, gives us the law as a standard to measure ourselves by, but he does not expect us to meet that standard. That's why he set up yeshua's sacrifice before the foundation of the world now you could take that and i will very hurriedly say this so nobody does that god doesn't care about you failing to meet his standards he does but he knows that you can't and so he has set up a system a mechanism by which you may be forgiven And your sins may be wiped away, but it is not acceptable for you to sin with a high hand and say, well, the blood of Yeshua will wipe this one away, so I guess I might just as well go out and have me some adultery. That's sinning with a high hand. And if you do that, you're in trouble. It is not the case that God doesn't care about your behavior. He does. But it's also the case that he has provided a mechanism to bridge the gap between your behavior and his standard, assuming that you are trying to reach his standard. The rich young ruler who comes to Yeshua and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Yeshua says, honor your parents, keep the Sabbath, follow Moses, and so forth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this guy says, I've done all that for my youth. And he says, you still lack one thing your wealth is holding you back so sell what you have and give it to the poor and come follow me and what he is doing is he's looking at this guy and he's saying your behavior is just fine your problem is you don't have a relationship with me that I want And in order for you to have the relationship with me that I want what I am telling you to do is get rid of your baggage give it to the poor and then turn and follow me, and then I'll know you're serious. There isn't anything in that vignette that condemns that kid for not following any part of the law. And it's the same thing with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and in fact what Yeshua does when he dukes it out with the Pharisees. These folks are keeping the letter of the law. They're tithing mint and cumin. They are doing everything punctiliously according to the law. And what Yeshua is saying is, sorry, guys, you are not in proper relationship with God. And since you're not in proper relationship with God, the fact that you're doing all this other stuff, it's nice, but it doesn't get you where you need to be, which is into relationship with my Father. The emphasis here, I would suggest is not upon the distance between your behavior and the Torah, because once you've got all the rules, I haven't had a shrimp in years. Don't ever intend to have a shrimp. I tithe, I do all of those things. I do everything that I am able to do according to the Torah, I do it. But the question becomes, Do I have a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through his son, Yeshua? That's the important question. And I do. So the fact, then, that I'm well-behaved is a bonus. Christians are terrible legalists, quite frankly. And we tend to focus on the gap between our performance and what we perceive the Jewish law is. And that's not the point of the exercise. The fact that you are able to follow all the rules is good, but it isn't the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to come into relationship with God, have faith in his promise, and trust in him as you go forward. That's the point of the exercise. And oh, by the way, you're supposed to behave well while you're at it. And as I say, lots of Christians tend to focus on their shortcomings as they see the scriptures, those parts that they read. And that's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is this is all to bring you into a relationship with Him, and then He will get your act cleaned up for you. It ends with verse 31 Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So the idea that justification is by faith is in no way contradictory to the requirements of behavior that are in the Torah.